This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Spy in the Elevator by Donald E. Westlake. It's read by Winston Tharp for LibriVox. It runs 38 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Winston Tharp The Spy and the Elevator by Donald E. Westlake When the elevator didn't come, that just made the day perfect. A broken egg yolk, a stuck zipper, a feedback in the aircon exhaust, the window sticking at full transparency. Well, I won't go through the whole sorry list. Suffice it to say that when the elevator didn't come, that put the roof on the city, as they say. It was just one of those days. Everybody gets them. Days when you're lucky if you make it to nightfall with no bones broken. But of all times for it to happen. For literally months I'd been building my courage up. And finally, just today, I had made my mind up to do it. To propose to Linda. I'd called her second thing this morning, right after the egg yolk, and invited myself down to her place. Ten o'clock, she'd said, smiling sweetly at me out of the phone. She knew why I wanted to talk to her, and when Linda said ten o'clock, she meant ten o'clock. Don't get me wrong. I don't mean that Linda's a perfectionist or a harridan or anything like that. Far from it. But she does have a fixation on that one subject of punctuality. The result of her job, of course. She was an ore sled dispatcher. Ore sleds, being robots, were invariably punctual. If an ore sled didn't return on time, no one waited for it, they simply knew that it had been captured by some other project and had blown itself up. Well, of course, after working as an ore sled dispatcher for three years, Linda quite naturally was a bit obsessed. I remember one time, shortly after we started dating, when I arrived at her place five minutes late and found her having hysterics. She thought I'd been killed. She couldn't visualize anything less than that keeping me from arriving at the designated moment. When I told her what actually had happened, uh, I'd broken a shoelace, she refused to speak to me for four days. And then the elevator didn't come. Until then, I'd managed somehow to keep the day's minor disasters from ruining my mood, even while eating that horrible egg. I couldn't very well throw it away, broken yolk or no. It was my breakfast allotment, and I was hungry and while hurriedly jury-rigging drapery across that gaspingly transparent window, 153 stories straight down to slag, I kept going over and over my prepared proposal speeches, trying to select the most effective one. I had a whimsical approach. Honey, I see there's a nice little non-P apartment available up on 173. And I had a romantic approach. Darling, I can't live without you at the moment, temporarily I'm madly in love with you. I want to share my life with you for a while. Would you be provisionally mine? I even had a straightforward approach. Linda, I'm going to be needing a wife for at least a year or two, 
and I can't think of anyone I would rather spend that time with than you. Actually, though I couldn't have admitted this to Linda, much less to anyone else, I loved her in more than a non-pee way. But even if we had both been genetically desirable, neither of us were, I knew that Linda relished her freedom and independence too much to ever contract for any kind of marriage other than non-pee, non-permanent, no progeny. So I rehearsed my various approaches, realizing that when the time came I would probably be so tongue-tied I'd be capable of no more than a blurted, "'Will you marry me?' And I struggled with zippers and malfunctioning air cons, and I managed somehow to leave the apartment at five minutes to ten. Linda lived down on the 140th floor, thirteen floors away. It never took more than two or three minutes to get to her place, so I was giving myself plenty of time. But then the elevator didn't come. I pushed the button, waited. Nothing happened. I couldn't understand it. The elevator had always arrived before, within thirty seconds of the button being pushed. This was a local stop, with an elevator that traveled between the 133rd floor and the 167th floor, where it was possible to make connections for either the next local or for the express. So it couldn't be more than twenty stories away, and this was a non-rush hour. I pushed the button again, and then I waited some more. I looked at my watch, and it was three minutes to ten. Two minutes, and no elevator. If it didn't arrive this instant, this second... I would be late. It didn't arrive. I vacillated, not knowing what to do next. Stay, hoping the elevator would come after all, or hurry back to the apartment and call Linda to give her advance warning that I would be late. Ten more seconds and still no elevator. I chose the second alternative, raced back down the hall, and thumbed my way into my apartment. I dialed Linda's number, and the screen lit up with white letters on black, Privacy Disconnection. Of course, Linda expected me at any moment, and she knew what I wanted to say to her, so quite naturally she had disconnected the phone to keep us from being interrupted. Frantic, I dashed from the apartment again, back down the hall to the elevator, and leaned on that blasted button with all my weight. Even if the elevator should arrive now, I would still be almost a minute late. No matter, it didn't arrive. I would have been in a howling rage anyway, but this impossibly piled on top of all the other annoyances and breakdowns of the day was just too much. I went into a frenzy and kicked the elevator door three times before I realized I was hurting myself more than I was hurting the door. I limped back to the apartment, fuming, slammed the door behind me, grabbed the phone book, and looked up the number of the transit staff. I dialed, prepared to register a complaint so loud they'd be able to hear me in sub-basement three. I got some more letters that spelled busy. It took three tries before I got through to a hurried-looking female receptionist. My name is Rice, I bellowed. Edmund Rice. I live on the 153rd floor. I just rang for the elevator and... The elevator is disconnected. She said it very rapidly, as though she were growing very used to saying it. It only stopped me for a second. "'Disconnected? What do you mean, disconnected? Elevators don't get disconnected,' I told her. "'We will resume service as soon as possible,' she rattled. My bellowing was bouncing off her like radiation off the Project Force screen. I changed tactics. First, I inhaled, making a production out of it, giving myself a chance to calm down a bit. 
and then I asked, as rationally as you could please, would you mind terribly telling me why the elevator is disconnected? I am sorry, sir, but that... Stop, I said. I said it quietly, too, but she stopped. I saw her looking at me. She hadn't done that before. She'd merely gazed blankly at her screen and parroted her responses. But now she was actually looking at me. I took advantage of the fact. Calmly, rationally, I said to her, I would like to tell you something, miss. I would like to tell you just what you people have done to me by disconnecting the elevator. You have ruined my life. She blinked, open-mouthed. Ruined your life? Precisely. I found it necessary to inhale again, even more slowly than before. I was on my way, I explained, to propose to a girl whom I dearly love. In every way but one, she is the perfect woman. Do you understand me? She nodded, wide-eyed. I had stumbled on a romantic, though I was too preoccupied to notice it at the time. In every way but one. I continued. She has one small imperfection, a fixation about punctuality. And I was supposed to meet her at ten o'clock. I'm late. I shook my fist at the screen. Do you realize what you've done? Disconnecting the elevator? Not only won't she marry me, she won't even speak to me. Not now, not after this. Sir, she said tremulously, please don't shout. I'm not shouting. Sir, I'm terribly sorry. I understand your... You understand? I trembled with speechless fury. She looked all about her, and then leaned closer to the screen, revealing a cleavage that I was too distraught at the moment to pay any attention to. We're not supposed to give this information out, sir, she said, her voice low. But I'm going to tell you, so you'll understand why we had to do it. I think it's perfectly awful that it had to ruin things for you this way. But the fact of the matter is, she leaned even closer to the screen, there's a spy in the elevator. 2. It was my turn to be stunned. I just gaped at her. Uh, a what? A spy. He was discovered on the 147th floor and managed to get into the elevator before the army could catch him. He jammed it between floors. But the army is doing everything it can think of to get him out. Well, but why should there be any problem about getting him out? He plugged in the manual controls. We can't control the elevator from outside at all. And when anyone tries to get into the shaft, he aims the elevator at them. That sounded impossible. He aims the elevator? He runs it up and down the shaft, she explained, trying to crush anybody who goes after him. Oh, I said, so it might take a while. She leaned so close this time that even I, distracted as I was, could hardly help but take note of her cleavage. She whispered, They're afraid they'll have to starve him out. Oh, no. She nodded solemnly. I'm terribly sorry, sir, she said. Then she glanced to her right, suddenly straightened up again, and said, We will resume service as soon as possible. Click. Blank screen. For a minute or two, all I could do was sit and absorb what I'd been told. A spy in the elevator. 
a spy who had managed to work his way all the way up to the 147th floor before being unmasked. What in the world was the matter with the army? If things were getting that lax, the project was doomed, force screen or no. Who knew how many more spies there were in the project, still unsuspected? Until that moment, the state of siege in which we all lived had no reality for me. The project, after all, was self-sufficient and completely enclosed. No one ever left. No one ever entered. Under our roof we were a nation, two hundred stories high. The ever-present threat of other projects had never been more for me, or for most people either, I suspect, than occasional ore sleds that didn't return, occasional spies shot down as they tried to sneak into the building, occasional spies of our own leaving the project in tiny radiation-proof cars hoping to get safely within another project and bring back news of any immediate threats and dangers that project might be planning for us. Most spies didn't return. Most ore sleds did. And within the project, life was full, the knowledge of external dangers merely lurking at the backs of our minds. After all, those external dangers had been no more than potential for decades, since what Dr. Kilbilly called the ungentlemanly gentleman's war. Dr. Kilbilly, Intermediate Project History, when I was 15 years old, had private names for every major war of the 20th century. There was the ignoble nobleman's war, the racial non-racial war, and the ungentlemanly gentleman's war, known to the textbooks, of course, as World Wars One, Two, and Three. The rise of the projects, according to Dr. Kilbilly, was the result of many, many factors, but two of the most important were the population explosion and the Treaty of Oslo. The population explosion, of course, meant that there was continuously more and more people, but never any more space, so that housing, in the historically short time of the century, made a complete transformation from horizontal expansion to vertical. Before 1900, the vast majority of human beings lived in tiny huts of from one to five stories. By 2000, everybody lived in projects. From the very beginning, small attempts were made to make these projects more than dwelling places. By mid-century, projects, also called apartments and co-ops, already installed restaurants, shopping centers, babysitting services, dry cleaners, and a host of other adjuncts. By the end of the century, the projects were completely self-sufficient, with food grown hydroponically in the sub-basements, separate floors set aside for schools and churches and factories, robot ore sleds capable of seeking out raw materials unavailable within the projects themselves, and so on. And all because of, among other things, the population explosion. And the Treaty of Oslo. It seems there was a power struggle between two sets of then-existing nations. They were something like projects, only horizontal instead of vertical. And both sets were equipped with atomic weapons. The Treaty of Oslo began by stating that atomic war was unthinkable, and added that just in case anybody happened to think of it, only tactical atomic weapons could be used, no strategic atomic weapons. A tactical weapon is something you use on the soldiers, and a strategic weapon is something you use on the folks at home. Oddly enough, when somebody did think of the war, both sides adhered to the Treaty of Oslo, which meant that no projects were bombed. Of course, they made up for this as best they could by using tactical atomic weapons all over the place. After the war, almost the whole world was quite dangerously radioactive, except for the projects. 
or at least those of them which had in time installed the force screens which had been invented on the very eve of battle and which deflected radioactive particles. However, what with all the other treaties which were broken during the ungentlemanly gentleman's war, by the time it was finished nobody was quite sure any more who was on which side. That project over there on the horizon might be an ally, and then again it might not. Since they weren't sure either, it was risky to expose yourself in order to ask. And so life went on, with little to remind us of the dangers lurking outside. The basic policy of eternal vigilance and instant preparedness was left to the army. The rest of us simply lived our lives and let it go at that. But now there was a spy in the elevator. When I thought of how deeply he had penetrated our defenses, and of how many others there might be, still penetrating, I shuddered. The walls were our safeguards only so long as all potential enemies were on the other side of them. I sat, shaken, digesting this news, until suddenly I remembered Linda. I leaped to my feet, reading from my watch that it was now ten-fifteen. I dashed once more from the apartment and down the hall to the elevator, praying that the spy had been captured by now, and that Linda would agree with me that a spy in the elevator was good and sufficient reason for me to be late. He was still there. At least the elevator was still out. I sagged against the wall, thinking dismal thoughts. Then I noticed the door to the right of the elevator. Through that door was the stairway. I hadn't paid any attention to it before. No one ever uses the stairs except adventurous young boys playing cops and robbers, running up and down from landing to landing. I myself hadn't set a foot on a flight of stairs since I was twelve years old. Actually, the whole idea of stairs was ridiculous. We had elevators, didn't we? Usually, I mean, when they didn't contain spies. So what was the use of stairs? Well, according to Dr. Kilbilly, a walking library of unnecessary information, the project had been built when there were still such things as municipal governments, something to do with cities, which were more or less grouped projects, and the local municipal government had had on its books a fire ordinance, anachronistic even then, which required a complete set of stairs in every building constructed in the city. Ergo, the project had stairs, 3,200 of them. And now, after all these years, the stairs might prove useful, after all. It was only thirteen flights to Linda's floor. At sixteen steps of flight, that meant two hundred and eight steps. Could I descend two hundred and eight steps for my true love? I could, if the door would open. It would, though reluctantly. Who knew how many years it had been since this door had been opened? It squeaked and wailed and groaned and finally opened halfway. I stepped through to the musty, dusty landing, took a deep breath, and started down. Eight steps on a landing, eight steps on a floor, eight steps on a landing, eight steps on a floor. On the landing between 150 and 149, there was a smallish door. I paused, looking curiously at it. The letters had long since flaked away, but they left a lighter residue of dust than that which covered the rest of the door, and so the words could still be read, if with difficulty. I read them. They said, Emergency entrance, elevator shaft, authorized personnel only. Keep locked. I frowned, wondering immediately why this door wasn't being firmly guarded by at least a platoon of army men. Half a dozen possible answers flashed through my mind. The more recent maps might simply have omitted this discarded and unnecessary door. It might be sealed shut on the other side. 
The army might have caught the spy already. Somebody in authority might simply have goofed. As I stood there pondering these possibilities, the door opened, and the spy came out, waving a gun. 3. He couldn't have been anybody else but the spy. The gun, in the first place. The fact that he looked harried and upset and terribly nervous, in the second place. And, of course, the fact that he came from the elevator shaft. Looking back, I think he must have been just as startled as I was when we came face to face like that. We formed a brief tableau, both of us open-mouthed and wide-eyed. Unfortunately, he recovered first. He closed the emergency door behind him, quickly but quietly. His gun stopped waving around and instead pointed directly at my middle. "'Don't move,' he whispered harshly. "'Don't make a sound.' I did exactly as I was told. I didn't move, and I didn't make a sound, which left me quite free to study him. He was rather short, perhaps three inches shorter than me, with a bony, high-cheekbone face featuring deep-set eyes and a thin-lipped mouth. He wore gray slacks and a shirt, with brown slippers on his feet. He looked exactly like a spy, which is to say that he didn't look like a spy. He looked overpoweringly ordinary. More than anything else, he reminded me of a rather taciturn milkman who used to make deliveries to my parents' apartment. His gaze darted this way and that. Then he motioned with his free hand at the descending stairs and whispered, Where do they go? I had to clear my throat before I could speak. All the way down, I said. Good, he said, just as we both heard a sudden raucous squealing from perhaps four floors down, a squealing which could be nothing but the opening of a hall door. It was followed by the heavy thud of ascending boots, the army. But if I had any visions of immediate rescue, the spy dashed them. He said, Where do you live? 153, I said. This was a desperate and dangerous man. I knew my only slim chance of safety lay in answering his questions promptly, cooperating with him until and unless I saw a chance to either escape or capture him. All right, he whispered. Go on. And he prodded me with a gun. And so we went back up the stairs to 153 and stopped at the door. He stood close behind me, the gun pressed against my back, and grated in my ear, I have this gun in my pocket. If you make one false move, I'll kill you. Now we're going to your apartment. We're friends, just strolling along together. You got that? I nodded. All right, let's go. We went. I have never in my life seen that long hall quite so empty as it was right then. No one came out of any of the apartments. No one emerged from any of the branch halls. We walked to my apartment. I thumbed the door open, and we went inside. Once the door was closed behind us, he visibly relaxed, sagging against the door, his gun hand hanging limp at his side, a nervous smile playing across his lips. I looked at him, judging the distance between us, wondering if I could leap at him before he could bring the gun up again. But he must have read my intentions on my face. He straightened, shaking his head. He said, Don't try it. I don't want to kill you. I don't want to kill anybody. But I will if I have to. We'll just wait here together until the hue and cry passes us. Then I'll tie you up so you won't be able to sick your army on me too soon, and I'll leave. If you don't try any silly heroics, nothing will happen to you. You'll never get away, I told him. The whole project is alerted. You let me worry about that, he said. He licked his lips. You got any Chico coffee? Yes. Make me a cup. 
and don't get any bright ideas about dousing me with boiling water. I only have my day's allotment, I protested, just enough for two cups, lunch and dinner. Two cups is fine, he said, one for each of us. And now I had another grudge against this blasted spy, which reminded me again of Linda. From the looks of things, I wasn't ever going to get to her place. By now, she was probably in mourning for me and might even have the sanitation staff searching for my remains. As I made the chico, he asked me questions, my name first, and then, what do you do for a living? I thought fast. I'm an ore sled dispatcher, I said. That was a lie, of course, but I'd heard enough about ore sled dispatching from Linda to be able to maintain the fiction should he question me further about it. Actually, I was a gymnast instructor. The subjects I taught included wrestling, judo, and karate, talents I would prefer to disclose to him in my own fashion when the time came. He was quiet for a moment. What about radiation level on the ore sleds? I had no idea what he was talking about and admitted as much. When they come back, he said, how much radiation do they pick up? Don't you people ever test them? Of course not, I told him. I was on secure ground now with Linda's information to guide me. All radiation is cleaned from the sleds and their cargo before they're brought into the building. I know that, he said impatiently. But don't you ever check them before deradiating them? No, why should we? To find out how far the radiation level outside has dropped. For what? Who cares about that? He frowned bitterly. The same answer, he muttered more to himself than to me. The same answer every time. You people have crawled into your caves, and you're ready to stay in them forever. I looked around at my apartment. Rather a well-appointed cave, I told him. But a cave, nevertheless. He leaned toward me, his eyes gleaming with a fanatical flame. Don't you ever wish to get outside? Incredible. I nearly poured boiling water all over myself. Outside? Of course not. The same thing, he grumbled, over and over again. Always the same stupidity. Listen, you. Do you realize how long it took man to get out of the caves? The long, slow, painful creep of progress for millennia before he ever made that first step from the caves? I have no idea, I told him. I'll tell you this he said belligerently, a lot longer than it took for him to turn around and go back into the cave again. He started pacing the floor, waving the gun around in an agitated fashion as he talked. Is this the natural life of man? It is not. Is this even a desirable life for man? It is definitely not. He spun back to face me, pointing the gun at me again, but this time he pointed it as though it were a finger, not a gun. Listen, you, he snapped. Man was progressing. For all his stupidities and excesses, he was growing up. His dreams were getting bigger and grander and better all the time. He was planning to tackle space. The moon first, and then the planets, and finally the stars. The whole universe was out there, waiting to be plucked like an apple from a tank. And man was reaching out for it. He glared as though daring me to doubt it. I decided that this man was doubly dangerous. Not only was he a spy, he was also a lunatic. So I had two reasons for humoring him. I nodded politely. So what happened, he demanded, and immediately answered himself. I'll tell you what happened. Just as he was about to make that first giant step, man got a hot foot. That's all it was, just a little hot foot. So what did man do? 
I'll tell you what he did. He turned around, and he ran all the way back to the cave he started from, his tail between his legs. That's what he did. To say that all this was incomprehensible would be an extreme understatement. I fulfilled my obligation to this insane dialogue by saying, Here's your coffee. Put it on the table, he said, switching instantly from raving maniac to watchful spy. I put it on the table. He drank deep, then carried the cup across the room and sat down in my favorite chair. He studied me narrowly and suddenly said, What did they tell you I was? A spy? Of course, I said. He grinned bitterly with one side of his mouth. Of course. The damn fools. Spy. What do you suppose I'm going to spy on? He asked the question so violently and urgently that I knew I had to answer quickly and well. The maniac would return. I I wouldn't know exactly, I stammered. Military equipment, I suppose. Military equipment? What military equipment? Your army is supplied with uniforms, whistles, and handguns. And that's about it. The defenses, I started. The defenses, he interrupted me, are non-existent. If you mean the rocket launchers on the roof, they've rusted through with age. And what other defenses are there? None. If you say so, I replied stiffly. The army claimed that we had adequate defense equipment. I chose to believe the army over an enemy spy. Your people send out spies too, don't they? He demanded. Well, of course. And what are they supposed to spy on? Well, it was such a pointless question it seemed silly even to answer it. They're supposed to look for indications of an attack by one of the other projects. And did they find any indications? Ever? I'm sure I don't know, I told him frostily. That would be classified information. You bet it would, he said with malicious glee. All right. If that's what your spies are doing, and I'm a spy, then it follows that I'm doing the same thing, right? I don't follow you, I admitted. If I'm a spy, he said impatiently, then I'm supposed to look for indications of an attack by your people on my project. I shrugged. If that's your job, I said, then that's your job. He got suddenly red-faced and jumped to his feet. That's not my job, you blatant idiot, he shouted. I'm not a spy. If I were a spy, that would be my job. The maniac had returned in full force. All right, I said hastily. All right, whatever you say. He glowered at me for a moment longer, then shouted, Bah! and dropped back into the chair. He breathed rather heavily for a while, glaring at the floor, then looked at me again. All right, listen. What if I were to tell you that I had found indications that you people were planning to attack my project? I stared at him. That's impossible, I cried. We aren't planning to attack anybody. We just want to be left in peace. How do I know that? he demanded. It's the truth. What would we want to attack anybody for? Aha! He sat forward, tensed, pointing the gun at me like a finger again. Now then, he said, if you know it doesn't make any sense for this project to attack any other project, then why in the world should you think they might see some advantage in attacking you? I shook my head, dumbfounded. I can't answer a question like that, I said. How do I know what they're thinking? They're human beings, aren't they? He cried. Like you, like me, like all the other people in this mausoleum? Now, wait a minute. No, he shouted. You wait a minute. I want to tell you something. You think I'm a spy. That blundering army of yours thinks I'm a spy. That fathead who turned me in thinks I'm a spy. But I'm not a spy, and I'm going to tell you what I am. 
I waited, looking as attentive as possible. "'I come,' he said, "'from a project about eighty miles north of here. "'I came here by foot, without any sort of radiation shield at all to protect me.' "'The maniac was back. I didn't say a word. "'I didn't want to set off the violence that was so obviously in this lunatic.' The radiation level, he went on, is way down. It's practically as low as it was before the Atom War. I don't know how long it's been that low, but I would guess about ten years at the very least. He leaned forward again, urgent and serious. The world is safe out there now. Man can come back out of the cave again. He can start building the dreams again. And this time he can build better, because he has the horrible example of the recent past to guide him away from the pitfalls. "'There's no need any longer for the projects.' "'And that was like saying there's no need any more for stomachs, "'but I didn't say so. I didn't say anything at all. "'I'm a trained atomic engineer,' he went on, "'in my project. I worked on the reactor. "'Theoretically, I believe that there was a chance "'the radiation outside was lessening by now, "'though we had no idea exactly how much radiation "'had been released by the atom war. "'But I wanted to test the theory, and the commission wouldn't let me. They claimed public safety, but I knew better. If the outside were safe and the projects were no longer needed, then the commission was out of a job, and they knew it. Well, I went ahead with the test anyway, and I was caught at it. From my punishment, I was banned from the project. They kicked me out, telling me if I thought it was safe outside, I could live outside. And if it really was safe, I could come back and tell them. Except that they also made it clear that I would be shot if I tried to get back in, because I would be carrying deadly radiation. He smiled bitterly. They had it all their own way, he said. But it is safe out there. I'm living proof of it. I lived outside for five months, and gradually I realized I had to tell others. I had to spread the word that man could have his world back. I didn't dare try to get back into my own project. I would have been recognized and shot before I could say a word. So I came here. He paused to finish the cup of Chico that I should have had with lunch. I knew better, he continued, than to simply walk into the building and announce that I came from outside. Man has an instinctive distrust for strangers anyway. The projects only intensify it. Once again, I would have been shot. So I've been working in a more devious way. I snuck into the project. Not a difficult thing for a man with no metal on his person, no radiation shield, cocooning him— and for the last two months I have been wandering around the building and talking with people. I strike up a conversation, I try to plant a few seeds of doubt about the deadliness of outside, and I hope that at least a few of the people I talk to begin to wonder, as I once did. Two months? This spy, by his own admission, had been in the project two months before being detected. I'd never heard of such a thing, and I hoped I'd never hear of such a thing again. Things have worked out pretty well, he said, until today. I said something wrong. I'm still not sure what. And the man I was talking to hollered for army, shouted I was a spy. He pounded the chair arm. But I am not a spy, and it's the truth. Outside is safe. He glared suddenly at the window. Why have you got that drape up there? The window broke down, I explained. It stuck at transparent. Transparent? Fine. He got it from the chair, strode across the room, and ripped the drape down from the window. I cowered away from the sun glare, turning my back to the window. "'Come over here!' he shouted. When I didn't move, he snarled. "'Get up! Come over here, or I swear I'll shoot!' And he would have. It was plain in his voice. I got to my feet, hesitant, and walked trembling to the window. 
squinting against the glare. Look out there, he ordered. Look. I looked. Four. Terror. Horror. Dizziness. Nausea. Far and away and far, nothing and nothing, only the glare and the high blue and the far, far horizon and the broken gray slag stretching out way down below. Do you see? he demanded. Look down there. We're so high up it's hard to see, but look for it. Do you see it? Do you see the green? Do you know what that means? There are green things growing again outside. Not much yet. It's only started back, but it's begun. The radiation is down. Plants are growing again. The power of suggestion, and of course the heightened sensitivity caused by the double threat of a man beside me carrying a gun and that yawning, aching expanse of nothing beyond the window. I nearly fancied that I did see faint specks of green. Do you see it? he asked me. Wait, I said. I leaned closer to the window, though every nerve in me wanted to leap the other way. Yes, I said. Yes, I see it. Green. He sighed, a long, painful sigh of thanksgiving. And now you know, he said. I've been telling you the truth. It is safe outside. And my lie worked. For the first time his guard was completely down. I moved like a whirlwind. I leaped and twisted his arm in a hard hammerlock, which caused him to cry out and drop the gun. That was wrestling. Then I turned and twisted and dipped, causing him to fly over my head and crash to the floor. That was judo. Then I jabbed one rigid forefinger against a certain spot on the side of his neck, causing the blood in his veins to forever stop its motion. That was karate. Well, by the time the army men had finished questioning me, it was three o'clock in the afternoon, and I was five hours late. The army men corroborated my belief that the man had been a spy, who had apparently lost his mind when cornered in the elevator. Outside was still dangerous, of course, they assured me of that. And he'd been lying about having been here two months. He'd been in the project less than two days. Not only that, the army men told me they'd found the radiation-proof car he'd driven, and in which he'd hoped to drive back to his own project once he'd discovered all our defenses. Despite the fact that I had the most legitimate excuse for tardiness under the roof, Linda refused to forgive me for not making our ten o'clock meeting. When I asked her to marry me, she refused, at length and descriptively. But I was surprised and relieved to discover how rapidly I got over my heartbreak. This was aided by the fact that once the news of my exploits spread, there were any number of girls more than anxious to get to know me better, including the well-cleavaged young lady from the transit staff. After all, I was a hero. They even gave me a medal. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hello, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Lisa. And we're going to talk about The Spy in the Elevator, first published in Galaxy, October 1961, uh, along with, is a, uh, I think somebody pointed out this is a very good issue. Was that you, Paul? I might have. It's got a Cordwainer Smith story. It's got a Frederick Pohl story mm -hmm. in this episode. It's got Fritz Leiber. So, yeah, Frank this is a Herbert, pretty good Robert Block. Oh, yeah, Frank Kerr. Uh, I forgot the Yeah, yeah. Uh, George so, yeah, this Smith. Is a, I've read something by him. Jack Sharkey. I've probably read. And Will, uh, Willie Lee, who. Willie Lee um, doing science. Yeah. Yeah. He, he's, he's the good Nazi. Ex except, see, he wasn't a Nazi. He moved 
out of Germany before the the Nazification went full under underway. And he he's one of those German engineers, super smart guy who wasn't picked up in Operation Paperclip. He was like writing uh, for the good guys before the war. <laughs> yeah. Um. Anyways, I don't know how I got uh, obsessed with that. Uh, there is a lot of engineering in this, um, a lot of planning in this story. But, um, dudes, I just love Westlake's writing so much. I loved it. I loved it from the beginning. Like, I started reading it. Jesse, I wanted to, like, reach out and kiss you. I was so happy. <laughs> I the, 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 the first paragraph, the, it, 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 it's, it's, it, it goes through, and then the last words put you in a science fiction story. Like, when the elevator didn't come, that just made the day perfect. A broken egg yolk, that's pretty common. A stuck zipper, that's fine. A feed back in the aircon exhaust okay the williams sticking sticking at full transparency you're going okay well i won't go through the whole sorry list so i have to say when the elevator didn't come that put the roof on the city as they say and right there you're going off like what the hell do you mean roof on the city mm-hmm. so right in the first paragraph let's the less, icing like, on the cake us, right pops us right in so yes. eric you know i do a show with eric rabkin every week um, he is the guy who came up with the explanation for what this is called. He calls it transformed language, where you take a, a phrase, an idiom that we understand and transform it so that you can show somebody is in a science fiction setting. And it happens a number of times in the story, but that's the very first time it happens. And, uh, he's super good, right? I just like, when you, this is, he's kind of like the opposite of Poe or Lovecraft and with these ornate, dense, um, oblique, uh-huh. um, really dialogue Baroque. light, yeah. Baroque, it's, Baroque, yeah. I, and, which I love, but reading Westlake is like, it's like, I don't know. It's, it's lean and mean. Frothy. Oh, yeah. so lovely. And, and his characterization, like, I don't care about characters. He makes me like spending time with these folks. Yeah. Right. I mean, just so good. And, um, uh, the opening that's not, it's not in the audiobook, which I think is really terrific. Whoever's this narrator. Oh, I got to find what else he's done. <laughs> right. Didn't you guys think <laughs> it was good? Great. It was yeah. Great. Like really, uh, just perfect voice for it. Anyways, um, the, uh, intro, uh, editorial introduction says, he was dangerously insane. He threatened to destroy everything that was noble and decent, including my date with my girl. <laughs> <laughs> and that basically sums up the tone of what is a dystopia, uh, what post-apocalyptic dystopia, um, that ends on a very sour note. Um, except he doesn't think so. <laughs> right? Yeah, uh, it, it's it's sour for the reader, not for the character, which is an interesting thing to oh, pull yeah. off. We we the, we the reader know how sour it is and what's gone on, whereas the character is a is obliviously happy. That's a that's a nice tricky pull there. Mm-hmm. As he was the whole time. As he was the whole time. Well, he was frustrated, but he was not. Uh, yeah, and. I love. I mean, with I, his thought in life. Oh yeah, I I love that he he loses the girl, but that's okay. He gets over it very easily. Because <laughs> he gets <laughs> well, more so, girls, cleavage girls, that's right. Cle- 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 cleavage girls who 
I, I mean, and he, he sprinkles her out there that he's going to wind up with the with the girl on on the video yeah. phone because it's like uh, oblivious I was at the time. So it's like, yeah, he, he, I could see that coming pretty early. Like, okay, like okay, he's not going to wind up with his girl. He's going to wind. He's going to wind up with the girl on the screen. That's fine. And it's just like in this nice little leavening of world building, like most marriages here are contract and of limited duration, which kind of reminds me of Heinlein a bit. It's mm-hmm. like no progeny, a no P as, as they, they say right. it. So that, that, yeah. I, that I'm not, I study philosophy and there is this thing of P and uh, not P. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's yeah, logical system. It's yeah. yes. Axiomatic and natural deductive logics where you basically, you take sentences and ideas and you, break them into symbols, logic symbols. Yeah. It's really ridiculous because uh, ultimately it, it is a system. It's like math basically for sentences and paragraphs and stuff like that. But ultimately it's useless. Um, and yet uh, in saying this and describing it, um, I think there is an underlying current that I want to talk about in this story that is rather deep, even though it seems very frothy. Um, mm-hmm. this is very much a, uh, you know, a story very much like a, a Philip K. Dick one, Paul, you and I have done. Um, in fact, that was a short story and it was also a novel. It was an expanded to novel length. You know the one I'm thinking of? Because I can't remember the title. I think I know. Um, it's the one with the underground, uh, silos, basically. Right. Uh, in, in any case, um, Penultimate My, truth, isn't the it? The penultimate yeah. truth. That's the yes, one. There that's we go. the name of the novel. Right, because the the story was um, the defenders. The defenders. Yes, that's right. Yes. Where there's these. It's not ore sleds in that case. It's it's they're called leddies. Um, I said they go out into the mm-hmm. world and they fight the war with the enemy and the people inside the si- underground silos, basically are in full war production so that they can. Uh, defend themselves. But meanwhile, outside, everything's, you know, green and grassy and, oh, right. okay. and the robots are lying to them, right? Right, right. So this is uh, all, cool. all a retelling of, um, Plato's Republic, basically, the mm-hmm. scene where we have the, the myth of the cave or the, uh, there's a bunch of names for it. But basically, uh, Plato says, you know, if you grow up in, these circumstances, you won't believe anybody from the outside telling you different. And I think this is a very important to not understand it only as a metaphor. uh, Sorry, not only as, you know, like a, a a thought experiment, but as a metaphor for uh, having conversations with people. (laughs) Well, in, in, uh, in this way, the way you were speaking, it reminded me a little bit of brave new world as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Absolutely. Except that it's all out in the open there. Right. Everybody knows that the reserves exist, but they don't yeah, no, think I about them. I, yeah, uh, the reserves, but I meant in terms of mentality of people, mm. like they're drugged in Brave New World and, and it's all sex as sex, but but like they're not not thinking about anything beyond where they are and what they're doing and, and happy and like, okay, I'm going on to the next person mm-hmm. and believing everything that, that they're told. I mean, they're, they're programmed that way, but... In, in, like the way that their perception of the world is sort of similar way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, I want I want to get into that, but uh, I also wanted to remind you, Misa, uh years ago, uh, Paul, you weren't with us, 
Uh, we did a show on the axe by Donald Westlake. Do you remember that at all? I was trying to read. I was trying to, I was like, well, I love Donald Westlake. What have we yeah, done? Yeah, exactly. Then, uh, I, but my memory is shit. Uh, yes, I do remember doing it, but you're gonna have to remind me what the story was about. So, uh, it, it's basically about a guy and there was a French movie we watched as well. It's about a guy who is fired from his job. Um, and tries to get a new job, but every time he goes in for a job interviews, there's somebody slightly more qualified, uh, and right. he ends up, um, uh, killing off the competition. It's a very, very <laughs> funny, uh, sad, scary <laughs> book. Um, and there's yeah. a French movie based on another novel that is very similar to it. Um, and looking at the show notes, it's very political, uh, which is pretty funny because it's, it, it wouldn't have felt political at the time it was written, right? Cause it's written in the eighties, I'm pretty sure. Um, but, uh, in reading it in the modern day, um, you get, uh, an explanation for why there was this sort of jobs crisis and, um, phenomenas happening to the narrator, right? In the story at that period. Um, and I, I think that you could see that. There's all sorts of artifacts in here, like, Paul, we've got uh, that massive trope that sort of dominates science fiction in the 60s and 70s, um, which is overpopulation. We got to worry. Over, overpopulation. <laughs> um, this this novel's all about the arcology. Yeah. it's uh, What's so funny is he doesn't, you know, he makes it basically a condo, <laughs> which is funny. Um, he calls it the projects, which of course has its own resonance today. Uh, it mm -hmm. probably didn't have it in 1961, but in the eighties, it certainly had that resonance, right? And then, um, uh, the reason this all came up and sort of the justification for why we would be reading, uh, a cr essentially a crime novel on the SFF audio podcast is because Westlake is a science fiction writer. He's just not known as a science fiction writer because he quit science fiction. So this is a story, the one we're reading today, this Spy in the Elevator, that was written before he quit science fiction. And in that uh, show from 2017 on the Axe, I talked about uh, this essay he wrote for a magazine called Zero, starting with an X. Um, and basically, he was saying, I'd, I love science fiction. I'd like to write it. I can't make a living at it. So fuck you. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. And the thing is, is this is honestly very true of most science fiction writers, right? They can't make a living at it. They do it as a side gig, their side hustle, right? Uh, they, you know, are Joe Haldeman is can't make a living at it. And he's one of the most successful science fiction writers living, I would say. Um, and he makes his living of being a teacher of English at a, you know, MIT. So that's just a, a sad reality of the industry, et cetera. But, um, in reading this, you can see that he knows exactly what the tropes of science fiction are. He's got ideas that are very solid, right? These are Philip K. Dick ideas, just approached from a very different angle. Um, wool, you remember that book that was a big hit a few years ago, Paul? Yeah, uh, yeah, oh yeah, the Hugh Howie, yeah. Hugh Howie's Wool. Um, Mice, you probably were not aware of this because it's no. sort of very indie, I guess. Um, and, you know, there's no movie, but there was a comic book and basically it's the same thing. There's these silos and people 
run up and down the stairways because they don't have elevators for some reason. And everybody <laughs> lives inside, right? And, mm-hmm. and it's basically a retelling of the spy in the elevator. Um, this is, this is very much mainstream science fiction. Um, except it's got this wonderful aspect that you only really see <laughs> in like a guy like Robert Sheckley. Um, and he didn't do it exactly the same way. Westlake has a great sense of humor and he's poking fun at everything all along mm-hmm. the way. Right. And it, he, he can, uh, he can do straight up just like Sheckley could do straight up, you know, emotional, emotional, um, straightness. But here and in most of his work, he just delights in enjoying how ridiculous life is. And that's oh, yeah. why he's, we get this ending. So much fun he's having, yeah, right. And, and I, I, we have fun in the reading of it. it. Like I was reading this with a student yesterday, and this is the kind of stuff that you know it makes kids enjoy science fiction rather than hate science fiction because it's like all this techno babble. I said, "Look, there's a great info dump on on page 183." <laughs> After he set up the the situation where he says, um, "Here's here's what." Uh, my day started off like and how terrible it was. He gives us a, an info dump and it's a classic science fictional info dump, but it, it flows just beautifully until that moment. The state of siege had in which we all lived had no reality for me. The project after all was self-sufficient and completely enclosed. No one ever left. No one ever entered under our roof. We were a nation 200 stories high. The ever present threat of other projects had never been uh, been more, been more for me or for most people either. I suspected than occasional or sleds that didn't return. Occasional spies shot down as they tried to sneak into the building. Occasional spies in our own leaving the project in tiny radiation proof cars, hoping to get safely within another project and bring back news of any immediate threats and dangers that project, that, that project might be planning for us. That project might be planning for us. Most of, Spies didn't return. Most or sleds did. And within the project, life was full. The knowledge of external dangers merely lurking at the backs of our minds. After all, those external dangers had no more than potential, had been no more than potential for decades since what Dr. Kilbilly called the ungentlemanly gentleman's war. And then he talks about his education. Um, and even the professor, right, or his high school teacher in, the project history, right? Just American history, I guess it would be, um, has these, this sort of irony and, and humor to explain. And then he explains what the professor meant. And we get all this in just a couple of pages, but because we're retreated to such flowy goodness, we don't even realize we're being educated in the background needed for the whole story's greatness right mm-hmm. i was yeah. thinking how great a film this would make just i was looking for the film right, right? Yeah. you can make this as a student film there's basically you you need an establishing shot of of uh the building from the mm-hmm. outside you need uh, a look out the window and you need an elevator but you don't actually need to go in it <laughs> you need a stairwell and you need like three four actors right and then you're done yeah. And it's so good because it all builds up this whole 
whole, uh, and you can do a voiceover at the beginning while he's making his breakfast and having all these problems. It's so good. Yeah. It, I mean, I, it's a kind of efficiency <clears throat> of science fiction that you don't see. Uh, uh, it's a, a real shame that Westlake quit science fiction because he's so good at it. I agree. I agree. Um, did you notice Dr. Killbilly? Oh, yeah. like this, this sort of refers back to what you were saying, right? Because uh, Billy, Billy William, that William is is like is strength and protector, and so Doctor Kill Billy, we're killing, right? You know, um, so so that re- like, and so then that's like, so what is happening outside of those mm-hmm. projects? What is going on? Why did they do this? Who did this? It, our our judo f- uh, flipping oh instructor, God, that's the best. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's that subtle is like he lies about what he does for a living because he wants to he wants to use he wants to get the guy into a position where he can use his physical skills against mm-hmm. against him. I just want to say as an aside, like how did I miss not being on the axe? Because it was uh, twenty seventeen and that was I was I was fully within the podcast. Right? Probably, I mean the podcast after was Ubik and the and the po- and two podcasts before was the fifth head of Cerberus. It's like how did I not get invited to be on the axe? Well, I don't think that you were not invited. I think you were probably not available. You're probably off photographing something. Maybe I was just not available. Because it's like, like, why would you ask me on the axe? But I got the side issue. I was looking like, how long ago was the axe? 2017. Like, wait a minute. Well, Scott was on that one. So <laughs> yeah, it's a, so, 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 it's a while ago. It was a while ago, but still. And, I was and still remember, that would that. have been recorded earlier. So Yeah, it was so, so yeah, maybe I was... Maybe I was off on somewhere some of that week. Okay, but anyway, that's a side issue. But yeah, but yeah. So uh, th- this story made me think of lots of things about where the outside is is not is uh, unknown and it's actually secretly not bad. Um, the move the movie the movie Logan's Run, for example, not the book, mm-hmm. where where they have no idea what the outside is like, and the outside is. It's now, a, fine. it's essentially an arcology that's you know, a little more dome-like, arcology. right? Um, and here we've I, got I, a I tower you. that's that's uh, one of many. In fact, it's Fallout the games, Fallout games, right? Where, Fallout games. Um, the Ballard move, the Ballard book, High Rise, which is also a movie with um, hmm. what's is with Loki in it, um, where most of the action takes place within the High Rise, and people don't leave it. Um, also, I told you, Jesse, about the story that you had never heard of. It's a it's a Cyril Cornbluth story called The Luckiest Man in Denver. Right. You were mentioning that, and I said save it for the podcast. So please okay. explain what that so, is. Okay. So it's basically a story about the city-state of Denver, which is having a water war with its greatest rival, which is this city-state of L.A., E-L-L-A-Y, and it's mm-hmm. D-E-N-V. So then they've forgotten why they're really fighting because they've been fighting for for apparently generations and the rest of the united states is kind of blasted so everyone's just retreated to these city states and they don't even know why they're shooting missiles at each other anymore mm-hmm. and it's about it's about a protagonist who this kind is what of, i'm saying it's very poli- a political story paul and these ideas are very political why are the russian oligarchs so much worse than the american uh, bloomberg oligarchs it's it's because they're communist. Oh wait, they're not communist anymore. Like, what is the what is going on? <laughs> They've forgotten. In fact, they haven't forgotten. They deliberately forgot, right? Like, oh, oh, oh. Or it's, oh, or it's definitely it's, can it can it be explained? Well, they're adversaries. 
What does the word adversary uh, mean? Uh, it's somebody it, fighting against. Why? Oh, because they're communist. <laughs> it's like they completely forgotten. Yeah, that 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 is kind of circular. Yes. Mm-hmm. So 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 the luckiest man in Denver is about a guy that kind of bumbles his way to success. Kind of like this guy doesn't bubble his way to success, but he but he gets more. He he gets accolades he did expect. I mean, he woke up this morning hoping to just propose to his girl for a non p marital life. Mm. He ends up a hero. Which so he, he he is lucky in that sense, but then at the other end, if you read through all this entire story and see what he's doing, like there, as you pointed out right in the beginning, Jesse, it's a dystopia. The outside is fine, and nobody wants to believe it. Well, uh, and, I, I think we have to we have to assume that he that the spy is not lying, and that he's not actually right. a spy, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, he's a, he's a guy from another arcology or no, another project. Who has gone outside, found it's fine, and he can't get anybody, his project or another, to believe him as to what the world is like. And everyone's retreated to these to these arcologies and and defending against imaginary enemies. I uh, I want to uh, go back to what what the Kill Billy says. Uh, the names of the wars, just because they have all have they're they're funny, right? But they also have this sense of um, yeah, you can't believe anything, right? So the first one is called, this is the World War One, Ignoble Nobleman's War. Yeah. And I was like, that sounds like Westlake. Westlake did write a couple of, there's a great blog called the Westlake Review that, uh, is, you know, reading through everything Westlake wrote and, um, you know, looking at foreign editions that are beautifully illustrated. He, he wrote a little bit of po- political stuff, but it wasn't, it didn't sell, right? So he didn't write more of it, but he, he was a very thoughtful guy. And, uh, so he, these are, I think, Westlake's comments on World War One's two and three, right? So the World War One, ignoble nobleman's war. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, who started it? Who ran it? Who, who thought it was great? And what was the result? Yep. The racial, mm-hmm. non-racial war. Yeah. It's like, you can see that's World War II. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, World War Three, the ungentlemanly gentleman's war. It's like, yeah. So there's all these gentlemen sitting in behind their desks and pressing buttons to send nuclear weapons at other people. Right. Small nuclear weapons, which, which is which was is an interesting little trick because I know at the time there was talk about making tactical nukes and using tactical nukes, and there was even some wondering whether we should actually use it in use them in Vietnam. Although this story is nineteen sixty one, so it's a little early for that. But it was yeah. the idea of MacArthur of wanted to use nukes yeah, in, on China yeah. in the invasion of uh, North North Korea from China, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a great plan. Um, this is, this is where you can, so, uh, I play a lot of this game called, uh, Player Unknown Battlegrounds, right? Oh, <laughs> I know. Uh, and what's so great about it is, uh, it, it, it makes you think about things in a different way because you have certain goals and different strategies, right? So it, it's, uh, there, and there's this waiting time. It's not always action. So I think about, like, this idea of, what's a good strategy here? What's a bad strategy here? One of the problems that people can have in the game and in, in a lot of, in real life too, is it's, um, basically your focus narrows. So you're looking down the barrel of your gun through a, through a site and you focus on what's out there in the distance. That's a threat. 
And what happens is you sort of lose track of what's happening around you. Like this is literally like, a problem. Like the map shrinking? Uh, it's, it, 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 it's your focus shrinks. So you can't even yeah. hear that somebody's sneaking up behind you, even though the sounds are there. So what you need to, it's like it, situational awareness or whatever, right? But more like instead of being, uh, focus, there's actually a special term that I'm blanking on right now. Um, it's, it's instead of aiming Tunnel down vision? sights, you're, no, <laughs> instead of aiming down sights, um, you should be sort of, uh, being more situationally aware and seeing what's going on at different places around all the different threat possibilities and gauge them correctly, right? So this is uh, a survival technique <laughs> that everybody should have. You know, if you're if you're looking at your phone walking down a dark alley, um, you're really engaged <laughs> with a Twitter Twitter thread. You're not going to be noticing the guy behind the dumpster who has a chain in his hand, right? That's just this is uh, known to us. This happens to not just people, but to countries too. They get sort of focused in weird ways. And, and so like at the end of this story, when we've got the army telling him, Oh, they found his car. And, uh, do they know, do the army, he notice he calls them the army men, right? Yeah. And of course it's an army, <laughs> but they live in a condo. So what kind of army is it? Right. It's like 40 guys who wear green uniforms, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> what are the, yeah. uh, we know they're kind of incompetent because uh they the guy the spy in the elevator keeps aiming the elevator at them and they can't figure out well we might have to starve <laughs> them out right <laughs> it's ridiculous um so uh, at the end yeah but it's crazy at the end we 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 should be questioning whether uh our hero um rice Ed, edmund i think it is um, Edmund Rice uh, has the right focus. His focus seems to be on getting a girl, right? Um, yeah. And when he changes uh, girls' streams, he finds another one to go after. Um, he's sort of forgotten that, like his apartment's falling apart. He's, he's sort of he's upset when uh, this spy says, "You know, what are you living in here for?" And he he sort of gloats about how great his apartment is. Yeah, the one with the window that doesn't work, right? And the one where the elevator doesn't work. And the one where his his single egg, his allotment, which means they're <laughs> under rationing, right, yeah. Yeah. Um, is broken. Uh, look, I, 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 that wouldn't bother me very much. I like broken eggs. But if you can't re- replace it, then you're living in a kind of and, massive and scarcity. Chicory, and well, chicory coffee. Chicory coffee, coffee. Chicory coffee, exactly, Paul. Mm-hmm. It's what I'm saying is is he is used to this sort of dystopian lifestyle, and he's focused on the ridiculous situation. I was thinking – go for it, Misa. He can't, I don't think he can imagine a that's, different life. That's right. And and um, thinking about like what uh, he says is at the bottom of the um, when he looks out the window and at the bottom of the apartment building, uh, it's slag, slag, S L A G, right? Yeah. And I was thinking, oh, that's from the nuclear war and all the radiation. It's not. Think about it. It's trash. It's their dumping of the slag yeah. from the ore that they're the ore cars that they're sending out and getting back. They dump their shit out the window. So yeah. the the fact that it's piling up out there means if this goes on, they will be buried, right? <laughs> Eventually, um, shades of idiocracy. Um, did you notice in the the war 
he says, so when they're talking about strategic weapons and, and tactical weapons, and he says, oddly enough, when somebody did think of the war, both sides adhered to the Treaty of Oslo, which meant that no projects were bombed. Right. So what does that mean? Does that mean this was the whole the plan yeah. from the start? Right. It, luckily, we never had World War Three. I mean, we still may, <laughs> but it seems <laughs> less likely. I think the uh, the who knows uh, javelin missiles sent to Ukraine are, aren't going to cause World War Three, um, probably. But uh, you know, there's, uh, the next nuclear treaty is going to be. Uh, renewed next year and if if people keep attacking trump from the right instead of from the left saying you know let's let's uh, maybe not make enemies where we don't need to make enemies then he's not going to be in a position to say hey yeah you know what i should definitely be soft on the russians but by being soft on the russians means making more nukes like come on <laughs> so i don't think we're going to have world war three but if if we do it'll it'll be stupid Right. Yeah. Um, and it may start with tactical nukes. Um, in the fifties, the uh, Americans had, well, you know, well, battlefield nukes. You could launch like from a cannon, basically a, a howitzer that you could shoot across the battlefield. Line of sight nukes, small nukes. This is in Starship Troopers as well, and that's what they're talking about, right? It's like, well, yeah, I don't know. It's, the way fields. the way the way it's coming, the way I read it is. They did it on purpose to, okay, let's just put everybody in these buildings, get them out of the way and get on with what we're going to get to do. Who, we, we never see who's running things. We don't right? know who, who that is. Yeah. We don't know who it is, but, I mean, this is the result that somebody Somebody's lying there. because uh, somebody in that chain of command is, is, is not telling the truth about what's going on outside, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, or... or- Maybe they were telling the truth, but now they just maybe maybe they're just looking at screens and they themselves don't know, or 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 they do know, and it's a matter of control of keeping people within the because if they're within the ecology, if they're always afraid, if they're always worried about things, then that's easier to control people. And now 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 I'm talking about this, now I'm thinking of the role playing game paranoia. Mm. Yeah, it's it, it's a very light and nice version of paranoia, but yes, it is very. We similar. don't have a computer, but it's the same sort of thing. You're living in yeah. you're living in alpha complex. You're it's never going outside. Mm-hmm. The, yes, the the, the 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 authorities are your friends, but mm-hmm. yeah, but they don't want you to actually. The final yeah, chapter. Like we know that that's going to be fine out there in whatever thirty years, but nobody else needs to know. Like it's cool, like to think about mm-hmm. all that. I want to read the final chapter because it, it, it really shows it as a dystopia, right? Even though it's very funny. Um, this is just the last, as a point, 193, um, starts terror, horror, dizziness and nausea, far away, far and away and far, nothing and nothing, only the glare, the high blue and the far, far horizon and the broken gray slag stretching out way down below. Do you see? He demanded. Look down there. We're so high up, it's hard to see. But look for it. Do you see it? Do you see that green? Do you see? Do you know what that means? There are green things growing again outside. Not much yet. It's just started back, but it's begun. The radiation is down. The plants are growing again. The power of suggestion. And of course, he, uh, 
He heightened the sensitivity caused by the double threat of a man being beside me carrying a gun, that yawning, aching expanse of nothing beyond the window. So he's actually got kind of a sense of uh, agoraphobia, right? Yeah. And it's yeah. because he's been born into this. His no, whole world. Like going outside, you're going outside is fearful. Um, that kind of reminds me of Words. Asimov's The Cave of Steel. Mm-hmm. And I want to point, people... I want to point out that her, his girlfriend is kind of mentally ill too. I mean, Misa, I met some girls and they are sometimes weird, but have you ever met a girl who was so obsessively worried about punctuality Punctual. that she will like, not speak to you for a week for being five minutes late. That's mentally I ill, no? That person, no. That's that's mental illness, right? She's got like a PTSD of some kind, right? Because, mm-hmm. like, and why? Because Orsleds are just like people, huh? What? <laughs> he broke a shoelace. People, he he was five minutes late. He broke a shoelace. That 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 happens. Right? It's not like, uh, how did she get stood up on a yeah, date? Yeah, but they're so, so bad? they have so little, they have so little, Jesse, so that they, they focus on the tiniest things and, sure. that, and that becomes their life. That's like imagine if you didn't do anything except leave your, sit in your apartment, you know, and cut, eat have, your egg and your coffee. I don't coffee have to imagine. Ride the elevator sometimes. <laughs> uh, I, yeah. That's my whole life. Ride right, the elevator sometimes. <laughs> Uh, we need to get you hiking more, Jesse. Or out, out more, out, out more. Out, out, no, they're out. like um, they're like kidnapped victims who who go back yes. to their kidnapper. Yes. Oh yeah, so- Stockholm syndrome. Stockholm syndrome. Yeah. Yeah, but Stockholm syndrome for a whole nation, right? This for is, every, yeah, the whole world. The uh, but each uh, I love that they're just you know I'm from a project 80 miles north, so he's just a, he's like Canada. <laughs> and he says and he tries to logic him into his like why do you spend spies out to see what they're trying to steal from us uh and what are you doing here i they think he's he's looking at their security measures and he's going to report back right but really he's there because he's trying to tell people the sky isn't falling in fact the sky's fine and in fact the land's coming back and we should all be out there enjoying stuff you guys like he's a humanitarian, right? He's a danger. He's a dangerous criminal. Right. He's, he's, he's a danger. He's, he's a, a danger he's to a the established established illegal order. immigrant, right? It's all sorts of ridiculous <laughs> oh ideas well, here. Now you're now you're getting really political. Well, I, I think it is. A, see, that's the subtle thing is is Westlake never really says here's my political affiliation, and that's stupid, anyways, right? To do that. Instead, what he does is he he puts us in a situation where we're right with the guy and then we're enjoying it and we don't know why we're enjoying it. But um there's a great scene after that um uh that info dump. Yeah, do it. It's so good. Right? You know the one I'm talking about. Yeah, right? I do. Yeah. This is page one seventy nine. Well maybe 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 you you're thinking of a different one. Until then I'd managed somehow to keep the day day's minor disasters from ruining my mood. Even while eating that horrible egg, I couldn't very well throw it away, broken yolk or no. It was my breakfast allotment, and I was hungry. And while hurriedly jury-rigging drapery across the gaspingly transparent window, 153 stories straight down to slag, I kept going over and over my prepared proposal speeches, trying to select the most effective one. Now, before I read this, um, I want to point out he is upset that the window is showing him the outside world. Yeah. I'm like, is that because he's worried about his neighbors seeing him pooping in his bathroom? Uh, no. No. There's nothing out there to see. It's, it's much it's better to world. look inward, right? Okay. Yeah. 
And then we get the funny scene. I had a whimsical, oh, uh, I kept going over and over my prepared proposal speeches, trying to select the most effective one. I had a whimsical approach. Honey, I see there's a nice little non-P apartment available up on 70, on 73, 173. And I had a romantic approach. Darling, I can't live without you at the moment. <laughs> Temporarily, I'm madly in love with you. I want to share my life with you for a while. Will you be provisionally mine? I even approached, I had even had a straightforward approach. Linda, I'm going to be needing a wife for at least a year or two. I can't think of anyone I would rather spend that time with than you. <laughs> Is that the one you were thinking of? Uh, no, I love that one. I love, I love that. that one. Uh, one were you I, I thought of? you were. Pardon? Which one were you thinking of? Oh, I thought you were at the end of the book. Um, after he had finished talking to the spy, and he said, "I moved like a whirlwind. I leaped and twisted his arm in a hard hammerlock, which caused him to cry out and drop the gun. That was wrestling. Then I turned and twisted and dipped, causing him to fly over my head and crash to the floor." That was judo. <laughs> I stabbed one rigid forefinger against a certain spot on the side of his neck, causing the blood in his veins to forever stop its motion. That was karate. Yes. Because <laughs> yeah. that was his secret that he was hiding. Right. He was hiding this. And uh, he, he just killed the guy who was trying to help him. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> We, well, but, he, but he does. But he doesn't know that. He, I mean, I mean, I mean, you went back to the whole Plato's cave thing. Like mm-hmm. they don't know, and they're afraid of what's outside. They're they've turned inward and insular, and looking, look, looking at other, looking at themselves, and having a slow, slowly decaying civilization inside of that project, and just accepting that that's okay and that's normal. Um, I'm going. I'm going to plug a book that, as when this recording comes out, will have been out for a couple months because we record a while in advance. But as of now, is is coming out next week, and that's called Mazes of Power by Juliet Wade, and it's about a society, a decaying society, where the technology is failing, and they all live in underground cities. And going outside, upside to the surface, is scary, and the only few people actually want to do it, but they, but they're. Their civilization is kind of falling apart. There's disease and uh, lots of people are just like just trying to get along and get along and others are trying to struggle against that sort of decay. But it's but now that I read this, Wesley, it's like, oh, my God, this reminds me of Juliet's mm-hmm. books. Like that, that, that's sort of like we're going to turn inward and we're just going to huddle and we're going to ignore the outside world in favor of staying inside and just ex- getting along with our chicory coffee and our broken transparency and our ration of eggs. And that's the mm-hmm. best we can do. Yeah. Dystopia indeed. There's a, um, there's a story I did. I think I did it for a reading short and deep, uh, called and all the earth, a grave by CC McCap. This is uh, one of those, you know, founded on Gutenberg and they got turned into a LibriVox book and I'm, I've never heard of the author, but it it is one of these really funny stories. Um, it's about uh, it's about a dis- sort of dystopian reality that we live in. Basically, there's a, a computer that uh, figured out that if you spent a little bit more on um, advertising for certain things, you could you know make great sales. And uh, a computer slipped a cog and accidentally put in uh, three extra zeros where it shouldn't have. So the budget for advertising for 
for um, coffins. (laughs) (laughs) Massively increases. Um, And uh, by the end of the year, you know, everybody's got a coffin under the Christmas tree. (laughs) They're having garages put in their house for for coffins, right? To park their coffins because they're not in use yet. There's lots of uh, the advertising, you know, they have these beautiful models laying in coffins looking gorgeous as they pretend to be dead. Right. And so that's creepy. And, uh, at the end of the story, um, you know, the next logical step was to, you know, use these coffins. Kill yourself. Right. Uh Exactly. So at the end of the story, um, uh, this uh, prospector wanders out of the New Mexican desert. Right. (laughs) And, And he's like wandering through town, wondering where everybody is. And he finds a newspaper that explains sort of what we've just been reading, you know, what happened to everybody. And he says, uh, well, it's just you and me, Mabel, or whatever uh, the name of his donkey is. Um, and he says, we're going to have to start over. <laughs> you get the sense that um, the author has just made a point that humans are <laughs> complete asses, right? <laughs> just <laughs> stupid idiots. And um, I got that vision at the end of this with, um, you know, he's he's gone. He's gone. Uh, just read the ending here. Despite the fact that I had the most legitimate excuse for tardiness under the roof, right? There's that back to the uh, city on the roof. Into the city, yeah. Right? Yeah. Linda refused to give me uh, forgive me for making our te- uh, for mi- not making our ten o'clock meeting. When I asked her to marry me, she refused at length and descriptively. <laughs> <laughs> but I was surprised and relieved to discover how rapidly I got over my heartbreak. This was aided by the fact that once the news of my exploit spread, there were any number of girls more than anxious to to know me better, including the well-cleavaged young lady from the trans, transit staff. After all, I was a hero. They even gave me a medal. Um, <laughs> yeah, okay, so now he's uh, sexually desirable. Um, still, maybe he's not, um, even though he's this great judo master, right, he's not um, uh, licensed for progeny. Right. No. <laughs> so what? Uh, something's going on in the society. It's it's very undercooked as to what you know who's running things and all that stuff. But I just had a vision of basically that prospector walking through the countryside, <laughs> seeing this tower, two hundred story tower, going up into the sky and slag, you know, steaming slag all around the base of it. Um, and he's just shaking his head <laughs> as he walks by because. This is, this is our reality. So many people live in these sort of bubbles of, you know, you can't, I, I can't, no, I, don't tell me about, it. I don't want to, I don't, right? And they'll build up these elaborate defenses explaining why the knowledge doesn't need to be in them or how that doesn't apply, right? It's like, that's what this is really good at is it's, it's, it shows not just you know, what's going on in the 60s in, uh, you know, worries about population explosion. That's not really what it's for. What it's for is, and the reason I think we enjoy stories like this is because it's about the psychology of our own human silliness. Mm-hmm. And, and Westlake is just a master of making it so fun to eat, right? It's like delightfully frothy, as you put it. Yes. Yes. Um, there was one line in there mm-hmm. that uh, he he said um, he saw the spy came 
And he said, and this was very frothy for me. He said, I'll tell you what happened. Just as he was about to make that first giant step, man got a hot foot. Um, that's all. So he's, uh, so what did man do? He ran back to the, he ran back with his tail between his legs. And I was like, one, one giant step. When did he write mm-hmm. this? Mm-hmm. 1961. <laughs> yeah, 1961. Yeah. And I was just, I, and then I thought, who wrote who who was Neil who was Neil Armstrong's like script um, uh, this speech is even, writer? This is, did he read this? This is even before uh, before Kennedy's speech. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I know. So that's that's what I said. Who read that? Who did somebody read this and <laughs> take it? I I doubt it. But that, that image is of flame, right? Um, that continues says, he frowned bitterly, the same answer he muttered, more to himself, this is on page 189, more on the first, bottom of the first column, the same answer he muttered, more to himself than to me, the same answer every time, you people have crawled into your caves, and you're ready to stay in them forever. I looked around at my apartment, rather a well-appointed cave, I told him, (laughs) but a cave nevertheless, he leaned toward me, his eyes gleaming with a fanatical flame, see that flame? Don't you ever wish to get outside? It's capitalized. Incredible. I nearly poured boiling water all over myself. Outside? Of course not. The same thing, he grumbled over and over again. Always the stupidity. The same stupidity. Listen, you. Do you realize how long it took man to get out of the caves? The long, slow, painful creep of progress for millennia before he ever made that first step from the cave? I have no idea, I told him. I'll tell you this, he said belligerently. A lot longer than it took for him to turn around and go right back into the cave again. And this is actually, again, very science fictional. It's talking about literally how long people had without electricity, how long people had without, you know, roads, without motors, right? Most of human history was without any of the technologies that we think of as, as, you know, useful. And it's not because you're afraid of electricity that you, that you uh, get it, it's because you don't know about it because you're not willing to step out of the cave, right? Mm-hmm. So, and the cave is a metaphor for like your set of beliefs, I think. Mm-hmm. Right? What you're, what you're willing to, like, that's why he needs to put the drapes over the window. He needs to cut out the information coming from the outside. Yeah. And it's not fake just that. Well, no, it's, he wants to eat the fake news, right? It's the real news he doesn't want to see. Right, but he's thinking he's thinking of the real news as fake news. It's like he doesn't. It's like yeah. The, the, I mean, I mean, this guy is basically telling me that the outside, the outside is fine. It, he's more it, like he's blocking people on Twitter. You know, like he's saying, "No, no, I can't. No, you're you're canceled." <laughs> cancel culture. <laughs> because I was I accidentally typed it in. I was typing in cancel and I typed in cancer and I was like, well, yeah, cancer culture is really what it is because it is a cancer. It, it, once you start blocking and blocking and blocking and blocking, what you're saying is no, 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 no. You're blocking and narrowing your your possibility, possible windows of what you can see because it, 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 it's literally it's he thinks what he hears in the building. And what the police, what the police, what the army tells him, right? The the fact that he got a medal, right? That came in an ore sled from outside. I was thinking maybe the ore sleds go to other buildings and you know take them apart, but uh, there's no evidence for that. But hmm. there, there is a whole, you know, 
with the fact that they say that or sleds sometimes don't come back um what are the or sleds uh sentient and they say fuck this i'm not going back the there. sleds usually come back but the spies don't always come back yeah no it says they do come back but notice it, we don't get much detail about us yeah uh or sleds usually come back spies mostly come back right or sometimes come mostly, back. sometimes sometimes come back and sometimes spies come now the question the question is how many of those are spies and how many of those are people like like our antagonist here who wants to tell the truth about what's the world really outside yeah oh, but 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 we, we but we get i mean i mean you can argue with you right, but they talk about radiation proof cars so if someone gets in a radiation proof car and goes from from uh, project to project maybe they don't know that the outside is okay because I mean the guy goes through this whole thing with sure. with our with our narrator about have you measured the radiation outside That's right. and like why would we it's like we know it's radioactive of like, course not I told him I was on secure ground now with Linda's information to guide me all radiation is cleared from the sleds and their cargo before they're brought through into the building I know that he said impatiently but don't you ever check them before deradiating them no why should we so. It, it's like, um, don't you ever want to look at that guy's voting record? No, why should I? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's very much about like you know cut, cutting off um, avenue to. It's it, it's almost like dis. It's a way of disempowering yourself, right? It's like um, I'll just go along to you know because everybody's going along. It seems all right. <laughs> and it feels like no, the, the, you're walking into the slaughterhouse. That guy screaming, running out of the building. Nah, don't listen to him. <laughs> yeah. With the arm half chewed off. Uh, don't listen to him. <laughs> Keep walking. Wow. Very, very amazing that he can make this dystopia so fun. And fe- it feels like, like I was thinking the first time I heard it before we started, I was like, I felt, oh, there's very little here. Because <laughs> it's ah. just fun, right? Uh-huh. But uh, unless you're going to talk about it you won't you won't sit and think think about actually what it's doing it just feels like oh it's just another science fiction story but no it's not it's it's got it's got a substantial power but because it goes down so easy i think if it was at novel length you would you would have to um sit and think about the world in a way that you don't in a such a short story this is like 30 minutes something like that right Mm -hmm. Uh uh-huh um that and, and that's uh that penultimate truth uh feeling where it's much more on you know we follow the guy as he leaves the place and we see how it is outside that that experience of in fact thinking about um the the defenders that is the same story as this just told from another point of view in the building right it's one of the uh, radiation. In fact, that guy's the radiation tech is the spy here, right? He worked yeah. in the reactor, and he's he's like curious about measuring the uh, the uh, te- the radioactivity of the ore sleds, and it's exact same system. The difference is the I guess they're they're uh, doing stuff for export, and there's not much export in this, as far as we can tell. Just a little bit of ore sleds and and spies. Uh-huh. No, the, because they're mostly self-contained, but in a re- because they talk about uh, hydroponics in the basin, mm-hmm. I, I believe. Mm-hmm. But it, and but notice a- what he had for breakfast too goes right back to that 
uh, Otis book. What was it called? Um, uh, City of Endless Night. City Endless Night. Yes. Right? Oh yeah. Right. That. Yes. Uh, what do you have? You have eggs. Because yeah. Eggs are uh, uh, what you cook. You can you can make them every day. It's the protein, protein, they're protein right? fat. They're cheap. Yep. Everything about it. I have they're a feeling that egg was very not um, free range. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> That's probably the yolk broke, right? Is that it just was didn't have enough uh, calcium and iron and uh, whatever else eggs need to be be good. You know, you you, you can see the difference. Uh, you guys buy eggs. Yes, of course. Yes. I, now, now that I have an instant pot, I can cook eggs much more easily than previously. So well, I can. Well, I don't can, shell I can for them until they start. Uh, until they start advertising on the podcast, Paul. <laughs> uh, okay. I, 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 I have I, a home cooker. <laughs> My I, mom I, likes I, her. I, 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 have, I, I have a pressure cooker that I pressure cook eggs to soft boiledness and use that with cheese and hot sauce and. Sounds good. It's all good. So uh, when you're buying your eggs, you know, like when you uh, you open them up, uh, the free range ones, they're they seem to have like an orangier color to the yolk mm-hmm. rather than the pale yellow. Yeah, mm-hmm. I always think like, uh, what is it, what does that do to the chicken that would ultimately have hatched from this? Like, would it be sort of a weak chicken, sort of on wobbly legs, or <laughs> like? Is a, all I know is that you can taste the difference between uh, sort of free-range healthy. Such, such a sad thought, Jesse. Yeah. Right? Here's, here's a sad thought for you guys showing that I didn't. I haven't come from a very wealthy background. Every time we'd buy eggs, and I still do this, I was trained this by parents, I always open the carton to check to see if any were broken because you don't want of to course. pay for broken yeah. eggs. I, I didn't know if that was just a that like regular people did it's that. It's a but sensible thing to do, Paul. It's okay. Okay, I thought it was maybe if like you a don't have unlimited thing. funds. <laughs> it's like, I, I mean, yes, one broken egg out of twelve is not a lot. That's but your it's allotment, it, Paul. You better check it. That, better. it. It's what I. It's what I learned to do, and I still do it by gum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah. Um. One, one last thing I want to talk about the story, like the that nice little detail of the staircase, mm-hmm. and it's like, it's like they're so used to. The elevators and the elevators being being when the elevator's out of order, he's out of out of source and he's like, What's this door? Oh, it's a staircase and he mm-hmm. remembers like kit and it's like the whole idea of being transgressive of going down a staircase is a transgressive act mm-hmm. for kids. Mm-hmm. And it's only there because it was there when the when before the building became an arcology. I was wondering what if the, are there newer arcologies that don't have staircases at all? What about fires and safety and evacuation if the if the if the uh, if the uh, elevator aren't working and there's no alternate way, that's really bad design. Mm-hmm. I was thinking um, that this. Do you need a stairway in a, in a mausoleum? <laughs> Good point. Um. Well. Well. But well. Because because the undead should have a way to get out. <laughs> my son. So yes. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. <laughs> yeah, I, I was trying to figure out when when this story was set. It I. It says by 2000 everybody lived in projects right mm-hmm. so we're this is 40 years after the story is published um is 2000 and then well what yeah but we don't know how long they've been doing this like i was wondering that too he was yeah. was he he was born there like how long has this been going on 
I figure, I figure, yeah, he was definitely born in there. I mean, it, it's like that coin booth story where we don't know how long it's been that they that the Sioux City's been a war, but you get the feeling it's been a long while mm-hmm. that yeah, people well, have forgotten. Yeah, so he he grew up, he played in the stairwell, so he was born. So we were his parents, were his grandparents. Mm-hmm. Well, I, mean, I, I I I think I'd say three generations at least. You because think that's where we are? Well, well, at least because once you get to the great grandparents, then memory of what's like like before kind of goes out and so it only gets transmitted through distorted stories like like the his, like the history lesson and nothing else mm-hmm. it's funny he mentions um uh, during the explanation for world war three he's he mentions the old folks home right mm-hmm. but the fact that he's got uh he he's got genet he's genetically unsuitable Mm-hmm. Um, what makes him unsuitable? He's obviously he's good with a, uh, a judo flip. Is it, <laughs> is it his brain is sort of deteriorated or he's got this PTSD from being a hamster in a cage, never gone outside like a, a lion, you know, pacing back and forth. Well, um, do you want, do you want to breed smarter people than that? I, it's a good question. It's, it's also, it's all suggested by the story, but not actually in the story, right? That's, that's so. What's so rich about this world? Uh huh. It, it really you, you has put, four, yeah, you, four you characters. You put it together, right? yeah. And uh, we only see three of them, or even two. Of, do we only see two? Yeah, we we see two of them like physically embodied, and then there's the third one that's mentioned, or one that we see on a screen. And the a number of actors you need here is two two guys, <laughs> uh, a lady yeah. who who comes in on Skype, and. Um, basically that's it, right? The rest is all dialogue and, uh, narration. It's very simple. Mm-hmm. I, I've never seen a dystopia this, this small before. Even it's tight. Yeah, tight is a, yeah. a good, good way of putting it. I, obviously I was thinking also, and one we haven't mentioned before of, um, Ian Forster's The Machine Stops. Um, yeah. We're- about that. And the elevator is the machine that's most obviously like when I first started reading the machine stops. I'm like, what is the machine that stops? Right. Well, the machine there is the society. Right. Um, that's it's not referring just to a particular, you know, device like, you know, your blender or something. <laughs> it's the society. The society is the machine here. Um, it's literally a machine and it's the elevator. Right. Um, yeah. and, and I figured it was broken at first, probably the first time I read it, just like the window, but actually it was, it was taken over, right? It was like, um, and, uh, yeah. And what, what's funny is, uh, I was also thinking, nice. um, that Westlake, you know, he was a New Yorker. He, uh, Manhattanite. And, um, I was thinking about how funny this is. Um, if you, he sort of even hints at it here. If you think about it not as a vertical uh, arcology, but as a horizontal one, um, the uh, elevator is like the L or the uh, underground, right? It's the subway. <laughs> it's oh. the it's the way you get to work, right? His girl lives three blocks away, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and then he gets he tries to get on the L and it doesn't it doesn't show up, and he's like freaking out and he calls the the company and complaints. I, that, did you just make that elevator sound? I did not. <laughs> I just heard an elevator sound. I heard a ding. I did too, but I did not make it. It was an email. Oh, okay, but it sounded like an elevator. <laughs> it did. That's hilarious. Yeah. 
But the important part here is that, uh, you know, you can walk three blocks as well. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. But it never occurs to him. <laughs> yeah. And it doesn't occur to anybody else, right? You could walk those three blocks instead of going rush hour, he calls it, right? It wasn't rush hour. That's right. He says, I would like to tell you people you have what you have done to me by disconnecting the elevator. You have ruined my life. Yes. Because he didn't want to get on the stairs. <laughs> well, he, did. he, he didn't even occur to him that there were he stairs, right? It didn't occur to him. To, yeah. yeah. It didn't occur to him that he could walk three blocks. What? <laughs> 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 what? But if there wasn't that old staircase, you wouldn't even have the capacity to do that. That's, that's, and notice that's the funny part. That we, we know that the, the spy is a little more reliable because he knows about the staircase, right? He, it occurs to him. In fact, he eludes the army that's looking for him because they don't even consider that there, anybody, you know, that there is a way out of the elevator. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the guy wonders, like, well, why isn't the army here? Why isn't they covering it? Have they caught him already? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, the army themselves have forgotten this. This thing is there. That's that, right. So, like, and, and that's another sign, right? That you're you're sort of so blinkered and focused down sights that you can't hear or see or be aware of what's going on around you. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. again, not. You know, when when you're trying to narrow and narrow and narrow your world, bad, bad, bad yeah. for you. Because it's gonna, there's gonna be a monster that's, you know, hiding behind that dumpster wants to take your wallet. Yeah. All right, I think we're done ish. Paul's gonna have to leave pretty soon. Oh no! Can we you, got a little do, time. do you have do you have a list of Donald Westlake like the hot the 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 hits the big hits the big hits, the big hits. um. The big hit. Well, there's another one on LibriVox that's pretty good. It's called The Risk Profession. That mm-hmm. is, I think, probably an hour and a half or something like that. Maybe it's two hours, probably probably an hour and a half. Um, it's uh, about insurance, which is uh-huh. fun, space insurance. It's very much more straight up, uh, less jokey. Although this wasn't isn't jokey exactly. It, it, it's, it feels very frothy and light and fun. Um, even if it is very serious and sad, it doesn't feel that way. That one yeah. is much more noir. And that uh-huh. was the, sort of the two sides that we have of Westlake, which is he would do the same kind of book, but from different perspectives, one light and frothy and one sort of hard boiled and noir mm. in the sense that, yeah, you, people are going to die and you're going to be, Oh man. <laughs> uh, but when he does it in the light comedies, um, it, it's just, it's situational jokiness. It's not so much there are jokes made. It's that you think the way people are putting things are just hilarious. So that's a good one. Um, if you're talking novels, um, those Dortmunder books are good. Um, mm-hmm. They're the comedies. If you're talking yeah. uh, the serious stuff, he has so many good books. The Hook we've done, I think, uh, that's a really good book about a guy who... Um, who uh, is a writer and he can't he can't sell books anymore, so he has to uh, hook onto somebody else's name and write as a ghostwriter for them. Uh. That's a good book. Um, there's a very serious book that he did called Memory that also we did as a podcast. Um, it was sort of his last book, it published after his death, and oh. not it wasn't written last, but it it didn't get a good publication earlier. Um, I think it was unpublished. 
there's actually a number of books still coming out. There's, I noticed one coming out really? in February, 2020. Yeah. Um, as, uh, on hard case crime. They're really is, good. His, is his state, his estate is putting them out? Uh, I think yes. In con- the guy who runs hard case crimes named Charles Ardai, and he's, um, I think he made his money in PayPal and then cashed out and said, I want to start a publishing company. <laughs> um, and oh. he, and he started publishing old, uh, under, you know, reprinted books and new, uh, great books. In fact, I was just going through their list and there's a great Krista Faust book called, um, uh, Money Shot. Uh, and it has a great opening. I tweeted it yesterday of a lady. She wakes up in the trunk of her Honda Civic and she's just been kidnapped and, uh, she's got to get revenge. <laughs> it's, uh, I think somebody said it's like kill Bill, but, uh, I, that makes it sound way too stylized in a way that it isn't. It's much more, uh, modern noir, uh, except it's a series, so it can't be noir, right? Um, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of great stuff on hard case crime and, and, uh, Charles Art, I, I think is working with the estate, um, one of the sons I've talked to at Westlake's, uh, of Westlake's was, uh, saying there's still more in the drawer. Uh, wow. We might be running out, but he, he wrote at least 60 novels. Mm-hmm. I haven't read them all, but I read a ton of them. And he's a, just a terrific writer. Yeah. I, I think there's maybe 20, uh, PDFs, maybe not that many on, on the PDF page full of, uh, oh, stuff. I'm gonna go search them all out. Yeah, he's really, let me yeah. type it in here, Westlake. Uh, oh, and I was thinking of doing another of his, uh, a very short novel of his that's really good called Anarchaos. Mm-hmm. This is, um, I'm vaguely remembering it, but basically it's a set in a science fictional uh, future. You know this one, Paul? Yeah, it's, 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 yeah, because we talked about it on, on Twitter about it. Yes. Because he was Turner Avenger's brother. That's yes. Right. Yes. If you want to do that one for the podcast, yes, I'm in. Yeah. I, I'm in. I'm in. Okay. So there is an audiobook. It's out of print. Um, I'm not 100% sure it is, uh, public domain. A, no, it's not public oh. domain. Um, it's oh. out of print, but I'm not 100% sure it's not abridged. I think they said oh. it was abridged, but I don't think it is. Um, I would, I will check if I can find my copy of the paperback. It only got like one and a half paperback releases, I think. Um, I was reading on, I think the Westlake review blog that said, oh yeah, there it is. Uh, here, I'll just read it here. It says, um, Sometime in 1961, the editors of the short-lived but influential science fiction fanzine called, called Zero, X-E-R-O, received from Donald Westlake what can only be described as a polemic. Um, and then, uh, it, we talked a bit about this before, you know, Frederick Pohl and John W. Campbell, editors. And so he had this pseudonym he used for science fiction, um, here he didn't use one, right? It's just Donald Westlake, but he uh, used the name Kurt Clark. Uh, uh, Kurt Clark. Yes, a rather pointed Gosh. pun, as somebody points out here. Um, and he wrote this novel and couldn't basically couldn't sell it. And he's getting angry because he thinks it's a good book. I think it's a good book. It's not the greatest book, but it's a good book. And uh, basically he got it published but didn't make any money on it. Um, and sort of gave up and started writing, um, much more, uh, saleable, much faster, because he was a super fast writer. 
Yeah. Um, and uh, he, he wrote on so many subjects. So Anarchaos was eventually published in 67 uh, as an ace, uh, very, very slim volume. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it has a lot of good things going for it, including the fact that, you know, we can't trust the protagonist to tell us the truth going in. Um, he's got so many good books, Misa. Um, yeah. You should just like, if you're looking to dig in, there's, um, one, uh, trying to, uh, it's called Somebody Owes Me Money. <laughs> Are we back in crime now? Yeah. It's, you know, they're crime stories set in New York or whatever. And it's about a guy who gets in a taxi and, you know, he's a taxi driver and he gets in sort of a, an incident where he's driving all over the city and somebody owes him money and he gets involved in a crime <laughs> syndicate. And he's just such a funny writer that you don't mind. Uh, wherever he takes you on a journey, even his weakest books, you know, where he sort of comes up with a concept and then just starts writing on a weekend and finishes it three days later. And you say, well, that wasn't his best. It's still super enjoyable and totally. It's so fun. Oh, so good. And, yeah. and I, I don't understand that because normally when I read, read books, if I, if, if it isn't, you know, amazing, I'm like, oh, well, that sucked. But even when it's, it's like, ah, uh, it doesn't quite gel. He still makes it work somehow. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's like a natural gift somehow. His, his, you see it here. It's the writing is just Absolutely. so clear, right? Absolutely. Yep. And, uh, he's so funny with his, his characterization of characters. You know, he gets a lawyer and he's making pyramids with his hands. <laughs> you can <laughs> visualize all the things. That these characters are doing, and there's there's never a time like when you're reading Greg Bear. I always compare him to Greg Bear because he's the opposite. When you're reading Greg Bear, you say, "This sentence sounds interesting. I have no idea what's happening. (laughs) I know there's something there. I know that he knows what he he's talking about, but I can't understand it. Uh Um, That's a problem. He is the opposite of that. He's like, I always know exactly what he means, and He's he's doing just enough so that we build up the whole picture in our heads. That's right. We build the whole thing. Absolutely. You don't you don't leave him for a second. Like you're there. Yes. Absolutely. And there's no and there's no point where you start drifting off. Right. Not at all. Not at all. It's so clear. And that it's it is it's almost like a gift in a way that you know Shakespeare was gifted. This guy's gifted in a different way. Mm Hmm. And uh, everybody should read all his stuff. Absolutely, yeah. he's totally science fiction's loss that he left. That massive, left massive it. loss. It absolutely yeah. is. Yeah, and and the thing is, is it's okay as long as you're cool with reading. I was talking to somebody about uh, his novel Smoke, um, which is a retelling of the Invisible Man, except with a, a thief, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's all stuff that is in the Invisible Man, except it's as a comedy. And, you know, you're, you're a thief and you want to go hang out with your girlfriend, but she's, she can't see you. <laughs> so she's sexy to you, but you're not sexy to her. <laughs> and then, um, uh, when you break into that bank vault and you hide in there and they don't see you, that's great. And in the morning you can come out with arms full of money that you've spent the night, you know, getting out of all of the lock boxes. Unfortunately, they'll see all the money in, floating out of the room right (laughs) it's just endlessly silly silly ideas that are beautifully demonstrated and uh if you if you don't you 
you won't realize how many movies have been made out of Westlake stuff until you start looking. If you go to like IMDb and type in Westlake, uh, Donald mm-hmm. Westlake, there are probably two dozen movies. And, really? and the thing is, is those are the, there, there are tons of like foreign, uh, sort of homages that are just a straight rip off of the whole book. And sometimes they credited them and sometimes they didn't. Huh. Uh, let's see. Yeah. I'm just looking, looking at filmography as writer, 41 credits. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, like they're, in they're fact, big in fact, movies. There was a, yeah. The movie version of the, there was a movie version of the X. Yeah. I think we saw that. I'm pretty yeah, sure. French. Yep. That, that's, yep. Yeah. That's. Uh, yeah. We did. Well, it's that, that one's sort of a half remake, I think as well. Oh, maybe that's a different, no, there's a British one with Michael Caine that is, uh, the same story basically, but yes, you're right. It is the French version. Um, there's a movie called The Hot Rock, which is he one of the. the he the street place of the grifters. That's I didn't oh, know. Oh yeah, that. that's what he's best known for. I I didn't real I didn't connect it. Like oh wow, I love that movie. Cool. Yeah, the, there's a movie called The Stepfather that's quite good, and that's was a re, it's recently re, remade. Uh, Payback with Mel Gibson is based on a Richard Stark novel. Um, well, yeah, I knew French that. French movie called Ordo based on a novella. I've read all of these. Jimmy the Kid. That is, stars, um, uh, who's the kid from, uh, uh, welcome, not welcome back, Hotter. Uh, what you talking about? That. What you talking about, Willis? What's that show? Different Strokes? Different Strokes? Yeah. Um, what's the kid from Different Strokes? You know, the short guy? Oh. Anyways, he, uh, there's a great TV movie called A Slight Case of Murder. So funny. So funny. Stars a William. A slight case of murder. A slight case of murder. Yeah. <laughs> a film critic. Macy, you'll love this movie. A film critic accidentally kills his lover during a spat in which she falls and hits her head. In panic, he immediately covers up his involvement and leaves the apartment. Um, and then the, a detective shows up and starts investigating and he sees like trying to, uh, listen to the cast. William H. Macy, Adam Arkin, Felicity Huffman before she became a prisoner. Uh, or whatever. James Cromwell is the detective. Wow, I'm gonna watch that today. It's, it's terrific movie. Oh wow! I, I really, I really, it's got seven on uh, IMDb. Uh, the, uh, there's um, a sequel to the Stepfather, Stepfather Two. So many, so many, and Cops and Robbers. That's a great movie, based on a great book. Um, yeah. Two disillusioned New York City policemen plan a $10 million robbery to fuel their low pensions, only to <laughs> run into one debacle after another in the process. <laughs> the Hot Rock, that's the one with, um, that's another, uh, based on another Dortmunder book. Uh, Robert Redford, George Segal, um, hmm. and, you know, they're all chasing after a diamond. Very, yeah. there, he was like huge in sort of unknown in the 70s. Um, and a great movie, uh, starring Lee Marvin, adaptation of uh, the same one as Payback, Point Blank, uh, mm-hmm. directed by John Borman, uh, stars Lee Marvin and Angie Dickinson. Oh, wow. Hard, hard case movie. So, yeah, he's got, he's got a ton of films. It's, it, it's sort of a sign when you got a ton of, fi- it's, it's, it's kind of like, uh, Stephen King, except nobody knows that, he, and Stephen King loves him too. By the way, I saw that somewhere. Yeah, uh, yeah. 
He na- didn't Stephen King name some character? Yeah. In fact, um, Richard Bachman is named after, uh, after, uh, Richard Stark. Oh, and Richard Stark okay. is his alias, right? So yeah, he's a, a writer's writer. There's another, uh, I keep forgetting. He wrote a series of books, um, under a name Tucker Co. T-U-C-K-E-R Co. C-O-E. And basically there, his version, he, it's like he wanted to write, um, a TV show. And it's basically Magnum PI, except, uh, he's an actor who <laughs> used to play Magnum PI. And he gets into trouble in Los Angeles and uh, it would make a great TV show. He's just so, cl- such a crisp, clear writer. It's an absolute, absolute delight to read his work. Yeah. Yeah. We're so lucky to have had like his stuff published. I, d- I found, you know how I found, I always talk about this probably. I found him through Lawrence Block. Lawrence Block I had. I think a- you did tell me that. I yeah. think you did say that in a previous one. Yeah. Lawrence Block had a, a book in which a character who's a bookseller is reading a book and he sort of has a little excerpt from it. I'm like, damn, that sounds good. I went, looked it up, real book. Right. <laughs> and just became, you know, I don't know, 15 years of great reading. And then you devoured it all. And so, and hence I begin. And I, and I don't know why I didn't last time uh-huh. we did him, but um, this time I really want to. Yeah, I'll, I'll see if I can. Scrounge up a copy of that movie for you if it's not on YouTube. Okay, cool. Cool. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF audio.